Welcome back to the second hour of Gesundheit with Jacobus. Here again is your host, Jacobus Holloway. And welcome back to the second hour today of Gesundheit with Jacobus. I'm your host, Jacobus Holloway. It is so nice to be with you this morning. We are talking with Dr. Robert Cheney, who just moved to the area in June, and he and his wife are here working in the internal medicine facility at Bozeman Deaconess Hospital as associates. And he's a critical, pulmonary critical care physician uh, specializing in lung health at higher elevation. He is also a professor, he was professor of medicine at the University of Washington until 2003, educating students. And also he did the same at the University of California, uh, San Diego, professor of medicine. Dr. Robert Cheney is also associate director of the uh, WAMI program from the University of Washington part. He was a member of the 1981 American Medical Research Expedition to Mount Everest as a climate scientist, which we talked about on the first hour, and he went on as a research on other projects in Alaska and South America, including two Denali medical research projects. So you can call him at the Bozeman Deaconess at 522-2400, 522-2400. He also wrote several books. Uh, one is called High Altitude Medicine and Physiology, which is really one of the topics we're talking about. Uh, that book, uh, about 500 plus pages, he co-wrote with John West, as well as uh, James uh, Millich. And that came out in uh, June of last year, 2007. It is available on diff- from different sources. Another book that he co-wrote is called The Lung in Extreme Environments, an issue of clinics and chest medicine, which came out in 2005. The other book he wrote, co-wrote, is called High Altitude, an exploration of human adaption, lung biology in health and disease. High Altitude, an exploration of human adaption, lung biology in health and disease, which came out in 2001. This book explores how humans respond to the hypoxia, which is the, uh, the delivery of oxygen to the cells, of high altitudes addressing the response of lowlanders to sudden and sustained exposure, as well as that of those living permanently at high elevations, examining adaptation and maladaptation, acute and chronic high altitude illnesses, and the challenges faced by lowland dwellers who are who have pre-existing medical conditions venturing to high altitude. That's that's interesting as well, because sometimes you may not know that they have a problem until they, they go, wait a second, what did you carry with you? And then another book came out in 2006, Clinics in Chest Medicine, Volume 26, Number 3, The Lung in Extreme Environments. Uh, he wrote that with Dr. Stephen Ruos. Is that how you say yes. it? Yes. Mm-hmm. So those are some of the books that he wrote, medical work that is going to be talked about for a long time, uh, the research that he has done that is so helpful for those in need especially living in higher elevations or deciding to do exercise at higher elevation or travel at higher elevation. So phenomenal research. And uh, thank, I know you love doing what you're doing, but at the same time, uh, a big thank you to you for doing that research because I'm sure that when you, do, when you become a researcher, that you don't always have the chance to really enjoy going up there because you have to observe things. You look from look through different eyes, right? You, you cannot just go, hey, let's go fishing. I mean, you're going to have to say, I'm watching those guys uh, fish or hike or whatever. Well, I think that's true, but I feel extremely lucky to have been able to combine something I was very passionate about or am very passionate about. That's the mountains, climbing or just traveling or trekking or whatever, and my profession. And that was not planned at all. I... I got into high altitude 
Uh, I got into climbing, first of all, by growing up in Ohio. Hmm. Where there are where there's show yeah. climbing, but my climbed the roof of your house, right? But my parents made the mistake of subscribing to National Geographic magazine, and as a child growing up, there are a lot of things that are exciting in National Geographic, but one of which was mountains, and uh, the mountains that I saw as a child were beautiful: the Blue Ridge Mountains, the Smoky Mountains, as we would take family trips. But I always wanted to see the big icy mm-hmm. mountains of the world, and mm-hmm. so after I graduated from college, I worked on a freighter with a classmate of mine uh, from college. And when the freighter got to Europe, we jumped the freighter and went to the Alps. Yes, and that must have been something. Th- well, that was just fabulous. I, I didn't know how to climb and we hiked around. That's all I did then. But I knew that seeing those mountains, that somehow mountains had to be a part of my life. So then when I came back to uh, the States at the end of that summer to go to medical school, I was in New York City but there's a lot of good climbing in New England. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I learned a lot of technical rock and ice climbing in New England. And then when it came time for me to further my training in residency, I wanted to come west. Mm-hmm. And so that began my career and my training and then my career at the University of Washington and mm-hmm. located in beautiful mountains mm-hmm. of the Cascades. And, mm-hmm. and I used to come to Bozeman since the mid-70s to go oh. ice climbing or or skiing or visiting friends and so forth. So coming here this last year is, uh, I wasn't coming to new territory. It was a no. place I'd also loved. And and my wife and I both love the Northwest and the opportunity to come here was, was a wonderful one. So mm-hmm. we're here. Let's uh, talk about some of the issues that come up uh, as we talked about in the end of the last hour. Uh, some of the ill effects people can have on high altitude. Uh, one of them is acute mountain sickness. Yes, I think... Um, as we alluded to in the, the first hour, the adaptation to low oxygen is a process that the body has a lot of resourcefulness and resiliency to do. Okay. And that's one of the things we've studied for a long we and many, many others for a long time. And it pertains not only to people going to high altitude or living at high altitude, but it pertains to patients mm-hmm. with heart and lung disease who have low oxygen levels. Those adaptations, although... Patients who are fairly sick don't have the resourcefulness. They, too, have to adapt. So um, learning those processes has been exciting and fun. Mm -hmm. Now, looking at the downsides of things that can happen for lowlanders going to high altitude, and that may mean lowlanders living close to sea level who come to Montana to go skiing or hiking or climbing in the summers because coming from sea level to seven or eight thousand feet down near mm-hmm. big sky or lone mountain is high enough to develop acute mountain sickness which is a very common uh usually brief and self-limited adaptation or maladaptation to, to high altitude and one year i did a sabbatical in colorado in summit county which is at about 9500 to 10,000 feet and we looked at thousands of people who came to an area that's very popular to go to. Yeah. And many of them come from low altitude. And about one of the studies we did there, uh, we just looked at the prevalence of acute mountain sickness uh, for people recreating in Colorado, and it's almost 25%. Wow. And acute mountain sickness, uh, the symptoms are very common. Headache almost always has to be one Mm -hmm. of them. Loss of appetite, loss of energy, uh, just feeling poorly, and those symptoms may come on within the first eight 
to 24 or 36 hours mm-hmm. when people go to high altitude. And if they s- stay put and rest and relax for a day or two, it us- the, those symptoms usually go away. So even without doing any exercise, if you just come to that altitude and say, you know, I'm going to first couple of days, I'm going to take it easy, walk around a little bit, and that already will help? Absolutely. Okay. In fact, it's been shown that if one goes to high altitude, eight to 10,000 feet acutely, and exercises a lot, there's a higher prevalence of acute mountain sickness. So it is better to go. And one exercise a lot? Yeah. Also, if you yeah. would. If in the first 48 hours, if, if one goes and just starts running up and down the mountain, yes. uh, they're more predisposed to altitude illness. So uh, if, you, if one can go to high altitude to go trekking or skiing or climbing or whatever and stage that ascent, mm-hmm. then they are much less likely to get acute mountain sickness. Mm-hmm. But, of course, it's very difficult when you've saved up all your money to go for a two-week trek in Nepal to not go to high altitude right away, and so people go and they get sick, or even to Colorado to go skiing, for instance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So acute mountain sickness is sort of the first, much more common form of altitude adap- maladaptation. Right. And then as, as one gets a little bit higher, things like high altitude pulmonary edema and cerebral edema are much more severe and can be fatal. Wow. And that is, what can you do about them? Well, I think the first thing that's most important is to understand and recognize symptoms. Mm-hmm. For instance, most of the time, high altitude pulmonary and cerebral edema are uh, preceded by acute mountain sickness. In other words, the more mild, self-limited form of altitude illness. So if, if you go to 10,000 feet to go skiing or trekking at 11 or 10,000 or 12,000 feet and you get acute mountain sickness, the best thing to do is just relax, uh, recover from it, which usually occurs in a couple of days at the most, yeah. and then you can go higher because your body is undergoing adaptation to the low oxygen, uh-huh. whether it's the breathing response, the, the blood response, the cellular response. All of those things are going on, mm-hmm. which are beneficial, mm-hmm. but they take time. And they're different in everybody. And I think one, thir- one thing I've learned about high-altitude uh, or, or from high altitude research is the fact that everybody's a little bit different. Okay. And those lessons translate to practicing medicine too, because mm-hmm. every patient with asthma isn't the same. Okay. Or every patient with emphysema isn't the same. So you have to understand the physiology of each of your patients, uh-huh. or of each of your athletes going to high altitude, mm-hmm. or of each of your recreators who are going to have fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, you know, when when I when I visualize that, then I assume that when you move from zero to 10,000 feet, that will have a certain effect, but it will probably be accelerated two or three times if you go from 10 to 20,000. Wouldn't that be the case? I mean, it doesn't yes. seem like it, 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 uh, it comes quicker than, you know, the higher you go, the faster these acute mountain sickness uh, this or, of, uh, symptoms will, will appear. Right. So that's why when you climb, you, you climb in stages and stay for a few days at a camp and then move on to the next one. Exactly. So th- people skiing over here, you know, going to hell, hell pretty high up and then come back down, high up and back down, um, you really have to work your way up for that. That's right. I, I, that's important. I think that some people can get away with it and yeah. go to those altitudes, nine and 10,000 feet if they live at sea level and want to go skiing and 
sometimes they just feel like they have a little bit of a hangover mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. the first day or so, but they may do quite well. Other people can really get clobbered. Yeah, yeah. And I saw that in Colorado quite a bit because so many people came there so quickly. People would fly from Chicago or Los Angeles and come to uh, Summit County, and they would be down at Breckenridge, for instance, and they'd leave in the morning. By the afternoon, they'd be up at 12,000 feet skiing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I saw a couple of cases uh, of high-altitude pulmonary edema on the first day. And even in Colorado, we saw high-altitude pulmonary edema, particularly during the ski season, maybe one case a day. Of course, there are a mm -hmm. lot of people there, but uh, people die from that. Mm -hmm. So I think an answer to one of your earlier questions is recognize the symptoms and be smart, take your time, enjoy the scenery, yes. let your body do its thing, mm -hmm. and then enjoy your, your time. Mm -hmm. 522-TALK, 522-8255. Folks, by any, uh, by any means, if you like to call uh, Dr. Robert Cheney right here on the program with a question about your lung health, uh, this is a great time to do it, great program to do it, because he can answer all kinds of questions. We are talking about his track to the, to the Himalayas, Mount Everest, and uh, some of the other work that he has done and the books that he's written about it. But uh, he is first and foremost, he is a medical doctor who is a lung specialist. So if you have a question about your lungs... Uh, make it count. Either email us at info at gwjradio.com, Gesundheit with Jacobus Radio, or call us at 522-TALK. Um, asthma. Let's talk about some of the disorders that many people know, because not everybody who listens to this program has been up high, except Chuck. And uh, But that was a whole other topic, which we'll talk about at some point, Chuck, and I'm sure you'll be sitting in the hot seat. But... <laughs> Anyway, what we uh, let's talk about asthma. What you just mentioned a few minutes ago, not everybody's asthma symptoms are the same, and not asthma for one person is different than asthma for another. What is asthma? Asthma is an inflammatory process. In other words, a process where the lungs are irritated, and from that irritation, the Airways, the lining cells of the airways uh, become inflamed and edematous, which then triggers a further response from the smooth muscles that surround the airways so, so that they constrict. Okay. The bottom line is that those airways, which normally can accommodate huge volumes of air and flow of air, are limited. Mm -hmm. And the analogy we used earlier was breathing through a garden hose versus a drinking straw. Yeah. So that uh, people with asthma have these usually intermittent or periodic inflammatory responses. Now, some people may have very mild asthma so that uh, they may, for unknown reasons or for known reasons, particularly some allergies, uh, come in contact with those inhaled irritants. Mm -hmm. The airways react. They have a mild case of asthma for a couple of days and they go away and maybe weeks or months before it happens mm -hmm. again. Mm -hmm. At the other end of the spectrum are people with persistent severe asthma who always have airway inflammation, airway narrowing, and difficulty in breathing. Yeah. And they are that that person, unlike the first group who may require just some inhalers, uh, you know, once or twice a month, the people with severe asthma are usually on medications uh, all the time. And also, as a, 
as a pulmonary physician, it's important to try to understand what triggers a patient's asthma. Mm-hmm. As I say, sometimes we never really know. I see. But, but often if you take a careful history and learn in the lifestyle of the exposures patients have, uh, you, you might be able to help change their lifestyle or, or, uh, or diet or whatever so that they don't have these allergic responses. Um, athletes, young, young people, often have adolescent form of asthma mm-hmm. that they grow out of. They say, don't worry about it, you'll grow out of it. Um, that can be because of stress. We hear about stress, stress-induced asthma, exercise-induced asthma, which doesn't have to be the same, mm-hmm. I understand. And um, it could also be that maybe there is something in, in, in their environment. It could be a mold. It could be some kind of an allergy that creates an asthmatic condition. Um, in my case, for example, I'm allergic to cats and dogs. If I uh, touch the cat that we have, then I have to wash my hands. If I touch a dog, i got to wash my hands. Because if I touch my face, my eyes get thick and I get shortness of breath. Um, though I already mentioned several kinds. I mentioned here allergies to, an- to animals, uh, stress-induced, exercise-induced. But my first question to you on, on this topic is, how come that young people get it and grow out of it? Well, it's a, a good question. And I think that there are some pulmonary physiologists and clinicians who think that uh, if, if you truly have allergic asthma as a child, you never really get over it. Okay. Now, that doesn't mean that it clinically would, might not go away. And I've had many patients, uh, young patients who get into their 20s or 30s and, and older and, and never have an occurrence again. So we, we say they've grown out of it, but we do know that they are still susceptible. Okay. But your description of yourself is great. I mean, I had patients or have patients who are allergic to cats, and yet their cat sleeps on their pillow with them. Yes. I mean, I, and I had you know, a couple of patients I'm thinking of at the University of Washington, uh, both of them young women who had pretty bad asthma, and mm. they were treating it every day. Okay. And they were shown to be allergic to cats, and their cat slept on their pillow. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> So yeah. you want to take a two-by-four and hit them over the head. Yes, say, exactly. You're going to – because the thinking now is that if asthma persists, whether it's mild or severe, that over time, with all of the inflammation that occurs, scarring can occur in those airways. Okay. It's called remodeling. Okay. So that uh, – there may be some long-term effects. Whereas in the, I remember when I was in training, we thought that if you treated asthma, if it were episodic and it went away, then those people, uh, if, if it went away during those intermittent periods, that those people wouldn't get long-term lung pathology. But now it looks like it may be mild, it may be clinically undetectable, but that there's still something going on. I actually, uh, first time I discovered that I had a cat allergy was when I was 19. Never had it before. Mm-hmm. Have you seen that before too? Yeah. That it actually happens when you get older. Yes, if you don't have it as a teenager. Absolutely. That again, when I was in training as a resident and fellow, I, I thought that one could not get an allergy or asthma if you didn't have it as a younger person. But there are people presenting with asthma in their fifties and sixties. And I remember the first couple of patients I had, I thought they had something else because the wheezing that they had can be other things too. Okay. Um, congestive heart failure, all these things. But in working those patients up, it really was asthma coming on 
in their fourth or fifth decade or I later. I see, I see. So uh, I think that people at a later age, meaning 20s, 30s, and 40s and later, can come in contact with something that uh, either their system has been triggered over time, their immune system, so that then it suddenly becomes manifest as asthma, mm-hmm. or that they've always had it and have just never been exposed mm. to whatever it is that triggers their asthma. Have you ever heard that uh, asthma can be reduced by drinking enough fluids, that you uh, that sometimes it could be an histamine-induced asthma, if that exists like that? I've been told that if you feel that something is coming on, and I've tried it myself, if I feel that wheezing is coming on or... Uh, the cat, whatever I touched myself, or the the, the 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 cat laid on the chair that I was uh, that I'm sitting in, and I touch it and touch my face. If I actually drink two or three glasses of eight, ten ounces of water, one in a row, that actually within about ten minutes I start feeling better. Have you ever heard about that? Have you done well, I, testing I've, on I've that? I've heard of that. I, don't, I really don't know whether I'm not aware of any studies that have looked at it. But on the other hand, it's probably prudent advice. <laughs> anyway, just to stay reasonably hydrated. Now, whether, as you mentioned, histamine is a very important component of chemical that is uh, excreted by the mast cells, is a type of cell that lines the airways, and so that it, when it's released, it, it causes that inflammation, that narrowing of the airways. Uh, being hydrated may minimize that. Hmm. So and also for allergies, maybe. Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't know. Huh. The, now, asthma, and, and I, when we come back, I really would like to talk with you more about uh, the differences between things such as asthma and bronchitis, emphysema, uh, uh, pulmonary fibrosis, mm-hmm. which my mom has right now, and, and they say it could actually be genetic. That is one of the things that I was reading about, that it may have a genetic component. Um, that we that we uh, emphasize some of that because I, and and another thing that I would like to bring up is actually sleep apnea mm-hmm. because my understanding is that uh, uh, I talk to people on a regular basis that say they have sleep apnea and they actually there is a there is a medical doctor Virginia Pasquale in in town who is a sleep doctor and my understanding is you work with her do some work with her at least and um, that could also be in lung condition. It's certainly related. Yeah, uh, certainly related. Pulmonologists, uh, along with some of the neurologists and, and other specialties, have worked hard on sleep. So, yeah, I'll be glad to talk about that All later. right, wonderful. When we come back, folks, Dr. Robert Shaney and myself will be back in just a few. Mm-hmm. 